Section 22 of Red Rubber, the story of the rubber slave trade on the Congo. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jennifer Painter. Red Rubber, the story of the rubber slave trade on the Congo by Edmund Dean Morell. Section 22. The Duty. What Britain Can Do, Part 3 So much for the cons. What of the pros? Above and beyond them all is the great cry for justice and mercy which arises from the Congo forests. Can we be deaf to it, we who are of the race of Clarkson and of Wilberforce? Can we forget our glorious part in the emancipation of the Negro race? Can we forget that our forefathers... In the teeth of parliamentary opposition, class prejudice, mob violence, fought a system hoary with age and sanctified by custom, and carried that fight to a glorious victory. Can we fail to see the finger of God pointing out to us the path we are called upon to tread in the extraordinary coincidence that the real awakening of the British conscience to the great Congo tragedy synchronises with the centenary of the most noble act which our historical annals record? Let us reject with indignant scorn the croaking of the pessimists who tell us that our people have deteriorated and that they have forsworn the ideals of their forebears. Let us prove to them that they are wrong. Let us prove to them that the heart of the nation still beats soundly as of yore by the performance of our plain and simple duty by saving the races of Central Africa from the grip of the modern slavers. Morally, we would seek in vain to escape from our responsibilities. Materially, Britain has legitimate considerations to invoke, which impel her to action in the interests of her own people, and in the interests of the communities which in Africa recognise her flag and enjoy her protection. In invoking them, she deals a crushing and irrecoverable blow to the basis of legal shams on which the rubber slave trade seeks at once to justify its existence and hide its veritable character. We know that the subtlety of jurists is seldom at a loss. It can be utilised and has been utilised again and again in the defence of the indefensible. But before great principles interpreted by the instruments of fairness and plain, straightforward argument, it breaks down. The subtlety of the jurist has been called upon to justify the pillage of the Congo Basin and the enslavement of its inhabitants. On the untenable premise, vide section 4, that King Leopold's African enterprise constitutes a state, jurists have evolved the theory that he is entitled to lay claim to the land and the produce of the land, e.g. its realisable wealth, which can be gathered only by the inhabitants of the land, and to delegate in part his ownership of that land and its produce to those upon whom it may please him to confer such powers, to you, or I, or anyone. That, be it noted, is the legal or juridical defence of pillage and enslavement in tropical Africa. Its audacity is truly prodigious. It can be met in argument by the simple enunciation of a principle which is, and ever must be, 
the cardinal feature of all legitimate European enterprise in the African tropics. In those whose labour is alone available for the cultivation of the land and for the harvesting of its natural wealth, in those is ownership of the land and its products vested, and with those, the people of the land, must the white man negotiate on terms of honest commercial dealing if he would acquire those products of which modern industrialism has need. From this fundamental principle, which regulates and directs relationship between the white man and the black in the African tropics, where the white man cannot cultivate the soil or harvest natural wealth, save in the Congo Basin since King Leopold's decrees came into force, there can be no derogation. To retreat a single inch in this regard is to leave the door wide open to the buccaneer, the pirate and the slaver, is to abandon the African tropics to the rapacity of unscrupulous speculators, is to decree the enslavement of the African races by men who sit at home and pocket the dividends, leaving their foul work to be carried out by others. This principle is termed trade. Trade means barter or exchange between individuals, as between communities, as between nations. It presupposes, and in practice necessitates, the possession on either side of commodities to sell with which to purchase. In the African tropics, the commodities possessed by the inhabitants are the raw products of their plains and their forests, products which they alone can cultivate or gather. When transactions are localised in far inland regions, such as the Congo, involving heavy expenses on the part of the European purchaser of raw produce in conveying it to the nearest port of shipment, the only commodities which the African can offer in exchange for the white man's goods are rubber, ivory and a few valuable resins, such as gum copal and gum arabic. These are the only articles the white man can purchase and make a profit on, for they are the only ones which will bear the cost of transport to Europe. Be it understood, therefore, that these commodities constitute the wealth actual and potential of the African, apart from and outside of his local wealth, which is represented by the extent of his household, domestic slaves, or more accurately, domestic servants, food plantations, fishing grounds, cattle, if the country is cattle-rearing, poultry and rude industries. Unlike the European in the actual stage of our evolution, the inhabitant of tropical Africa is not, in his normal state, called upon to labour more than is necessary to supply himself and his family with food, shelter, weapons of war and the chase, baskets and nets for fishing, receptacles for culinary and domestic uses, and so forth. Moreover, living as he does under a communistic society, where the chief is at once the head and the father of the clan, his wants if he falls sick, or when he gets infirm and unable to labour, are supplied by the clan. There are no workhouses in the African tropics, and save under the stress of drought or famine due to failure in crops or other cause, there is no poverty. The labour, then, which the Africans may give to other purposes than those of sustaining life in conditions as comfortable as his needs and ambitions dictate, is not necessary to life. 
Yet throughout the African tropics, wherever and whenever the white man has come with commodities to sell, which the native has not possessed, and has become attracted by, the latter has voluntarily grafted upon himself extra labour in order to gather and reap commodities produced by his land which the white man required in exchange for what he brought. In this natural keenness of the African in the great black belt to trade lies at once the keynote to Afro-European relationship in that belt and the explanation of the white man's presence therein. The Phoenicians were the first to recognise the commercial instincts of the West African native, and successive relays of white-skinned peoples have followed their lead. The West-Central African trade has grown to great proportions, and with the advent of the iron horse is increasing every year. Its future is incalculable, and in time West-Central African production will appreciably affect all the markets of the Western world. The laziness and indifference of the native to which King Leopold, who has robbed him of countless millions, testified publicly in Brussels last year, is exemplified by the millions of pounds sterling worth of palm oil, palm kernels, mahogany, rubber, gums, wax, piasava, groundnuts, and now raw cotton can be added to the list, which every year is brought to Europe in ocean steamers, products of the voluntary labour of the African in his own land, owner of the soil, owner of its fruits, cultivator in his own right, proprietor of his own mighty muscles. The value of all this produce does return to Africa, for which it proves a source of prosperity, Vide section 1, in European and American merchandise, and so the African gives employment to tens of thousands of European workmen and artisans, and provides thousands of European families with the wherewithal to obtain the necessaries of life in the shape of wages arising from the labour of the African thousands of miles away. When the labour parties of England and the continent have realised that between the labourer at home and the labourer in Africa there is practical community of interest as co-partners in the world's production, constructive assistance in the problems connected with the administration of tropical African dependencies may be expected from them. Now on the Congo, since the decrees of 1891, an altogether different conception prevails. There, as I have said, everything is abnormal. Sitting in his royal palace, 5,000 miles removed from his black subjects, whom he has never seen, King Leopold has, with a single stroke of the pen, robbed the native of his entire wealth, actual and prospective, and calmly appropriated it himself. So colossal a theft has never been imagined by mortal man. The rubber which grows in the forest does not belong to the native. It belongs to King Leopold. And so with dead and live ivory, and so with the valuable resins, and so with everything. And observe how this works out, and must work out in practice. I may write down, the contents of the Bank of England belong to E.D. Morell. That would be foolishness, would it not? Equally foolish would it be for King Leopold to write down, the wealth of Central Africa belongs to me, if he stopped there. But the regenerator of the Negro race is anything but foolish, and he did not stop there. 
having appropriated on paper, he proceeded to acquire indeed. So he claimed the labour of the people to bring him their wealth which he has pirated. There is no need to purchase what belongs to you by virtue of your royal will. So the abnormal replaces the normal. Armed force replaces trade. The revolution is accomplished and the enslavement of the people so long as that armed force can be maintained is complete. It is marvellously simple. The one week part of the British note to the powers in 1903 is the paragraph in which the suggestion is put forward that the question of commercial freedom, otherwise trade, as laid down in the Act of the West African Conference, should be separated from the question of the treatment of the natives and referred to the Hague Court. But nothing is more patent than that the two questions are inextricably interwoven. They cannot be separated. They make one. If the right to trade in the produce or his country is taken from the native by a prima facie claim to possession of that produce, ill treatment necessarily follows as night follows day. For such a claim is merely grotesque unless it be enforced, and it can only be enforced by compelling the native to collect that produce through the constant use of armed coercion, involving the inevitable perpetration of incessant outrage, wholesale and detail. To submit the effects of a given cause to one international tribunal and the cause itself to another is surely amazing illogicalness. I maintain that it is the duty of the British government, above all governments, to uphold the principle of trade in the African tropics in the legitimate interests of the people who have entrusted it with power. This is no question of protection versus free trade, of irritation with other powers because they put on differential tariffs against our goods, and we should prefer they did not. It is a question of trade itself, the pivotal element which unites all societies, the link which binds together in a practical sense the various branches of the human family. I can only attribute the peculiar horror which seems to strike some worthy persons at the mere mention of the word trade or commerce in connection with the Congo problem to ignorance of the essence of that problem and to forgetfulness that the very existence of this country is dependent upon trade. Trade spells freedom for the inhabitant of the African tropics. Its suppression spells his enslavement by those who deny him the right to own the produce of his country, deprive him of his right to buy and to sell, strangle for ever his economic development, force him at the end of the lash and at the muzzle of the rifle to harvest what was once his wealth before they stole it from him and lay it at the feet of the despoiler. Surely those who label themselves humanitarians affect to look upon the African as a cross between a babe and a saint, he is neither, and boast of a superior moral sense, should consider this aspect of the matter, if their nerves are unwrought at what they deem the utilitarianism of the other. The plain fact of the matter is that to insist upon the principle of trade relationship between the European and the Negro in his own home as the basic principle in that relationship is synonymous with declaring that the Negro must be treated not as a half-babe, half-saint, to be petted and veneered with an outward culture altogether foreign to his ideas, 
leaping over twelve centuries in a few years, as a man with the rights of a man, not as a brute beast. To great commercial nations like England, Germany and the United States, the closing of the greater part of Central Africa to trade is a blow dealt straight at the legitimate interests of the British, German and American people by a monarch whose sovereignty over the Congo was recognised by them principally on the ground, vide section 1, that his intentions were to facilitate in every conceivable manner the development and extension of trade. Stanley, speaking at Manchester in 1884, in favour of King Leopold's enterprise, went into flights of rhapsody over the potentialities of the Congo as a market for British manufactured cotton goods. Mr. Freelinghusen, American Secretary of State, in a letter to Mr. Tisdall, said, Soon these millions of people inhabiting the interior of Africa will, under the inspiring influence of civilization, become purchasers of every kind of provision, manufactured goods, agricultural implements, etc., and I see no reason why the people of the United States should not come in for a large share of the valuable trade which must soon be developed in this region. Mr. Casson, the American delegate at the conference, congratulated himself that we secure, by the action taken at Berlin, the abolition of all monopolies, private or cooperative. Monopolies have become one gigantic monopoly, going far beyond a monopoly of trade, which signifies the right of a certain party to be the exclusive purchaser of produce in a given region, involving claim to personal possession of the very elements of trade, thus doing away with the need of purchase altogether. An owner, let it be repeated, is not called upon to purchase what belongs to him, the importance of the rich prospective trade of the Congo Valley has led to the general conviction that it should be open to all nations on equal terms, said President Arthur in his message of December 1884. It is not only closed to all nations, it is extirpated. The fundamental idea of this program is to facilitate the access of all commercial nations in the interior of Africa declared Bismarck at the opening of the Congress. Freedom of trade, remarked Lord Vivian at the Brussels Conference in 1890, was established in the interest not only of civilization, but of the native races of Africa. Thus it will be seen that the representatives of the great commercial nations saw nothing to be ashamed of in consecrating aloud the principle of trade in the Congo Basin. Why should Englishmen be afraid of upholding that principle today? Lest they be accused of ulterior motives? Where are the ulterior motives? They are not ulterior. They are actual, legitimate, common sense. They should be boldly proclaimed, insisted upon. The British merchant has the right of erecting factories and trading with the natives all over the Congo, even in the Domaine de la Courant for all its inalienability, that every square yard of the territory should be claimed by King Leopold and his financiers, and everything of economic value thereon, matters not one jot. The claim is preposterously impudent. British trade, with or without the medium of the British merchant, has the right to penetrate into every corner of the Congo Free State. That King Leopold's principal secretary in Brussels should inform the British government, in effect, 
that trade is impossible on the Congo because there are no longer any unappropriated lands there is mere insolence. That the same officials should declare in reference to the British note that it confuses the utilisation of his property, that is King Leopold's property, e.g. 800,000 square miles in Central Africa, by the owner, that is King Leopold, with trade, that is the right of the natives to buy and to sell, and that the native who collects on behalf of the owner, King Leopold, does not become the owner of what is so collected, and naturally cannot dispose of it to a third party, is, with the exception of King Leopold's manifesto of 1906, the most cynical avowal of wholesale spoliation ever penned. What? The power to which King Leopold came on bended knees 22 years ago, begging for support, calmly informed today by the same potentate that the British merchant and that British trader shut out from Central Africa because it has pleased him by a stroke of the pen to substitute himself for the native as the owner of the commercial wealth of Central Africa and that consequently the native has nothing to exchange for British goods? In very truth, the proposition is laughable in its audacity. To use an historic phrase, enough of this foolery. Aye, and more than enough, for it exercises itself not only at the expense of the legitimate interests of great nations, but at the price of African blood shed in torrents and African misery unportrayable in words. And finally, there is another reason why Britain should decline any longer to recognise the pretensions of King Leopold. To every power holding possessions in the neighbourhood of his fine stations, and in proximity to the operations of his ivory and rubber-raiding officials, the seizure and collection by armed forces of his revenues is a positive danger and disturbance. The presence of a lawless marauding soldiery, ever increasing in numbers, and only held in nominal discipline by the conferring of full freedom to loot and rape, is a menace. The erection of frontier forts armed with heavy guns, a threat. The importation of enormous quantities of ball cartridges and ammunition to make rubber, a la Congolaise, which includes the provisioning of fighting clans with material of war to force rubber in the royal interests from their weaker neighbours. When the regulars are employed elsewhere, is a peril which it would be folly to ignore. Two great rebellions of native soldiery, which brought the Congo Free State almost toppling to the ground, have occurred in the last ten years. Even the fort at Shinkakasa, just outside Boma, the capital, was seized a few years ago by the garrison, exasperated with the treatment of their women by King Leopold's officials, who, terrified out of their lives, ran hither and thither like scared rabbits for all their gold lace and impeccable ducks. Boma itself being saved from destruction only by the ignorance of the mutineers in the working of the time fuse, and from pillage by the action of a brave British coloured subject of Lagos, who organised his compatriots from the British West African colonies, settled in various capacities at Boma, into patrols, which marched through the town, and who was destined later on to be hounded to a suicide's grave by the malignity of the men he had rescued. 
Bands of these revolted soldiery had on several occasions invaded and committed havoc in the contiguous British possessions, and to this day hold parts of the Congo territory into which no official dares set foot. Any moment may bring forth another and graver revolt, and any day may see the rise of an intelligent native corporal with a brain above his fellows, some bastard Arab blood in his veins perhaps, who will make a bold bid for empire against the officials of the absentee landlord. And all over the land broods the shadow of a great crime, filling the breasts of the miserable people with an undying hatred of the accursed white man and all his ways. Given the slightest chance at combination, given a leader, given a favourable set of circumstances, and the smouldering embers will burst into a flame, and the conflagration might well spread until every official of the king, with his throat cut, had been flung into the river. It would be a just retribution, for what sort of task would confront the criminal apathy of Europe? Sir Harry Johnston is not given to sensationalism or rash predictions, but this is what he wrote in 1902, four years ago, before the charges against King Leopold's enterprise were thoroughly established. If all the stories are true of the wickedness perpetrated in the Congo Free State since 1885, there will some day be such a rising against the white man and such punishment inflicted on European interests in the heart of Africa as will surpass any revolt that has ever yet been made by the black and the yellow man against his white brother and overlord. To watch with philosophic eye this cauldron of native discontent and misery fed with the ingredients of a civilised barbarism goes seething on is madness. Arguments drawn from the necessity of keeping up the prestige of the white man in the African tropics do not appeal to me very much, for the surest foundation for the maintenance of such is justice, even-handed tiger justice, as poor Mary Kingsley used to say. But I often wonder that the white powers can continue their supine contemplation, while deeds are done in the Congo Basin, which brand with indelible infamy the white race in the eyes of the black, deeds which in Lord Fitzmaurice's words make civilization ashamed of its name, deeds which cry to heaven for vengeance, and for which some day, in the fullness of time, a fearful penalty will be enacted. The Act of the West African Conference provides a weapon which can be wielded against the civilised barbarism introduced by King Leopold, with or without the convocation of a renewed conference of all the signatory powers of that Act, a weapon which requires but five of the signatory powers to make up their minds to use. Act 1. That weapon is the Navigation Commission, which has never been invoked, although the essential clauses of the Act have been violated with impunity for 15 years. The question of navigation on the Congo waterways is intimately bound up with the question of the trading rights of European merchants and of the natives, for it is obvious that freedom of navigation is a misnomer if trade is non-existent. Consequently, the general question of maladministration, misrule and spoliation is also involved. Indeed, the idea entertained by the plenipotentiaries of the powers at Berlin in providing for a navigation commission was clearly concerned with the protection of trade. 
Thus, Monsieur de Cousereau, one of the German delegates at the conference, declared, Prote three sitting, November the 27th, 1884, that in the view of his government, freedom of trade should not be left unsupervised, sans contrôle, and he added, the International Navigation Commission appears to it, the German government, a competent instrument to be provisionally entrusted with this supervision. Moreover, the Act itself, as signed by all the powers, is explicit. Article 25 reads, This provision of the present Act of Navigation shall remain in force in time of war. Consequently, all nations, whether neutral or belligerent, shall be always free, for the purposes of trade, to navigate the Congo, its branches, affluents and mouths, as well as the territorial waters fronting the embouchure of the river. The powers enjoyed by this commission as provided in the Act would be as considerable as those enjoyed by the Danube River Commission. They would be virtually sovereign powers in regard to everything affecting navigation, and who controls navigation in the Congo Basin controls the arteries and veins of the Congo Free State. It is independent of the territorial authorities, Article 20. The powers composing it can have recourse to their own ships of war. It can raise loans, Article 23. In short, the appointment of this commission would be the stepping stone for that wider and closer international control of the Congo, which, failing the possible but unlikely solution of Belgian annexation, on lines acceptable to public opinion, honour and safety alike demand shall no longer be delayed. With these considerations, I bring this chapter and with it this volume to a close. I have indicated the specific courses of action which are open to Great Britain under her own treaty rights, rights which no power would dream of contesting, and I have given expression to a widely spread conviction that the adoption by Great Britain of one or more of the steps denoted would compel international interference. To these I may here add that Great Britain would appear to be entitled, with or without the appointment of a navigation commission, to place a gunboat on the Upper Congo, and that she ought to do it on behalf of her own subjects. And, I hasten to add, other powers would seem to have precisely the same option in that respect. I have given reasons, and no one can deny that they are grave, legitimate and weighty reasons, why Great Britain should drop the policy of vain expostulation pursued for ten years, and take energetic measures to abide by, and if necessary to enforce, her treaty rights in her own justifiable interests. And I have proved, I venture to think to the satisfaction of all reasonable persons, that in so acting Great Britain would be serving the general interests of humanity. With respect to the position of Great Britain as one of the signatory powers of the Act of the West African Conference, I have shown how preponderating is that position in regard to the corresponding position of most of the signatory powers, how great is the prestige of Great Britain abroad at the present moment, how immensely important are the issues at stake, how duty and honour summon the British government to a vigorous initiative. Finally, I have drawn attention to the very definite instrument which the Act of the Conference provides for the invocation of practical international control 
over the vast fluvial system of the Congo. What remains to be said can be embodied in a couple of paragraphs. Nothing impracticable, nothing unrealizable is being demanded on behalf of the Congo natives. No grandmotherly legislation, no sentimental claims are being urged in their interest. Only justice. They have been robbed of their property. We demand that their property shall be restored to them. They have been robbed of their liberty. We demand that their liberty shall be restored to them. They are bound in chains. We demand that those chains shall be rent asunder. For fifteen years they have been degraded, enslaved, exterminated. We demand that this shall stop, not fifteen years, not five years, or one year hence, but now. The Congo Free State has long ceased to exist. It has given place to a political monster, an international outlaw. Of that political monster and international outlaw, but one thing can be said or written. Delenda est Carthago. The reek of its abominations mounts to heaven in fumes of shame. It pollutes the earth. Its speedy disappearance is imperative for Africa and for the world. E. D. Morell End of section 22 End of Red Rubber The Story of the Rubber Slave Trade on the Congo by Edmund Dean Morell